Hi everyone, I hope you're really well this week. Welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me, your host, Zoe Blasky, where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and more alive, whatever that looks like for you. So maybe this podcast is going to inspire you to look at your health and self-care. Maybe it's thinking about your career and making work work for you. Maybe it's looking at your relationships or your relationship with yourself and finally addressing that inner critic and making a commitment to being kinder to yourself. So I chat to all sorts of well-being experts and game changers to help you become your healthiest, happiest and most alive version of you because that is what I think is the most inspiring thing to become for our children. Hi everyone and welcome to this week's episode. I hope you are all well. This is a really exciting one for me to share with you because it is my first ever live episode. So I recorded this in front of an audience at ICAD, which is a platform dedicated to expanding knowledge, exchanging ideas, advancing well-being for the prevention and treatment of behavioural, mental and emotional health issues bit of a mouthful. So the conference was a couple of weeks ago. It's mainly professionals that go. So we recorded in front of lots of therapists and coaches. There are about 100 people in the room. I was pretty nervous, but Mandy and I did, I think, a really good job of keeping the conversation really relatable and insightful and actionable. And actually, if there is one episode that I think really sums up my passions and my experience and a lot of my lived experience of my own childhood and the impact that that had on me and how therefore I'm trying to parent differently. I think this episode would be it in terms of the one that really encapsulates a lot of what Motherkind is about. So it's with Mandy Salagari. You might have heard of her because she did a really big Channel 5 series where she gave therapy to a range of celebrities. So she's a bit of a trailblazer. She is a addiction parenting and relationship expert. She is also the founder of Charter in Harley Street, which is a outpatient treatment centre. Her book is called Proactive Parenting, which I've been giving to all my clients and recommending to so many people. It's brilliant, especially if any of you came from a dysfunctional background or maybe even a background with addiction or you just want to parent differently to how you were parented. It's a really good resource for that. And Mandy has a brilliant tech talk as well, which I think now has got about a million views which is called Handle Your Feelings Before They Handle You. I'll put a link to it in the show notes so you can have a look there. But that's also really, really good. I watched that a lot of times in preparation for the podcast and it's great. So Mandy and I chat about the power of healthy selfish, which is this absolutely brilliant phrase that I might actually nick from her when she talks about how we have to look after ourselves as parents and mothers and the importance of our own esteem and modelling that to our children. The first thing that we can do as parents is honestly make sure that the kid can't shoot the messenger, which means I have to be in good shape. I have 
have to apply healthy selfish, which means that I can afford to give without condition. We talk a lot about feeling our feelings and the danger of saying, I'm fine, I'm fine, you know, over and over again to ourselves and others when we're thinking about how we really feel. We talk about people pleasing and Mandy gives a really good granular example of how to recover from people pleasing, which I know a lot of you are gonna love hearing. When you put on a facade and the rest of the world believes it, I'll put an envoy into the world and nobody will know and you never have to be vulnerable again because the pressure builds up of what about me? We also talk about nature's cruelest trick when it comes to raising healthy children and that is super insightful. And because she's an addiction expert, I asked her about technology addiction because I know a lot of you think about that and worry about that. You know, should we be giving our children screens? When and what does that look like? So I hope you really enjoy the episode. There's a bit of like rustling and the quality is obviously a little bit different than when I'm sat in a studio or in my living room. So just accept that that's part of doing a live podcast, that you do hear a little bit of, there's some like teacups clinking in the background. And also I think Mandy uses a few swear words. So if you're listening in the car with little ones, just be mindful of that. But I hope you really enjoy it. And I cannot wait to hear all of your feedback on this episode. Here it is. So Mandy, let's start at the core of your personal and professional passion and experience, which is addiction. And I think addiction is one of the most misunderstood behavioral challenges, probably globally. And I love your definition of addiction. So could we start there? And then I'm going to ask you about your experience with it. Okay, so start soft and then go in really hard. Talk about you. It's not, it's not my first radio. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> so addiction. Whenever I've worked with addiction, people say things like, can't you find another word for what you do? Because addiction is so stigmatized that the minute you mention it, 40,000 people turn off because they're thinking, oh, I'm not an addict. Because there's so much kind of judgment and pejorative thinking around it. And I thought about it. I mean, I'm not immune to that. I've thought about, should I call it something else? And then I think, damn it, no, it is what it is. I mean, I remember, I'm wondering already, I remember when I was in treatment and I was about to leave and we were talking about whether when we go out from treatment, whether we would actually tell anyone that we were an addict. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to tell someone I'm an addict. And these people are like, why, why, why are you going to tell people? I said, because in a way, I'm an addict and you wouldn't know that to look at me necessarily. I don't conform to the kind of stereotype of addiction I didn't then. I probably didn't when I went in either. So actually, I want to introduce that this is what addiction looks like, because I think that the worldview needs to see that. Why would I change the name of it to conform with worldview? So when I started working with addiction, the sort of simplest way that I think about it and when I talk to people is it's the simple pattern of using something outside of yourself repeatedly in an attempt to fix how you feel to the detriment of yourself. So then people say, oh, isn't therapy an addiction? And I'm like, yes, if it's causing detrimental effect. No, if it isn't. And that detrimental effect, by the way, can be a complete abandonment of self. It can be, for example, I can't cope with feeling on my own. 
So I constantly watch reruns of 24 or something, then maybe 24 does become an addiction because I'm isolating and I'm telling myself that I can't be on my own. So the detriment to myself is that I need this thing to fix the feeling that I'm not supposed to have. So some of the detriment to ourselves is hidden because it's in the esteem and other stuff is really obvious. It's the physical, emotional, the rector relationships, all that stuff that we're so familiar with. But unfortunately, the esteem stuff is the rot, the debt where it starts. That's what I want to talk about next. Go for it. Where it's rejected. Thank you. <laughs> it's the core of this stuff. Yeah. Now you talk so eloquently and beautifully, and this is my lived experience. I remember being about five and like you share in your TED talk, I remember thinking it's not safe to just be me. It's not safe to be vulnerable. You know, now I know that set me up for a lifetime of pain and exactly what you described. So there's going to be loads of mothers listening and parents listening to this. So I think it might be helpful to describe how that felt for you and how that then set you up to take things outside of yourself to fix how you're feeling inside. And is there anything that mothers and parents can do to support their children through that first early experiences of vulnerability? Two questions. Okay, I'm going to start with the second one first. I think when people come in looking for help, when parents come in looking for help, and I will say to them, so, and how are you? And they go, look, look, I knew you were going to say that. You know, I'm all right. Look, I'm a bit tired because, you know, little Josie's not very, you know, she's acting out. I'm just tired because of that. My self-care's all right. I go to the gym. I eat honestly, Mandy. I'll be all right. And I promise you, once Josie is better, then I'll put some time into me. And it's a mixed message. So there's little Josie with mum saying, I want you to get better and I'll do myself later. So Josie's going, well, I'll do myself later then. So I think that the first thing that we can do as parents is honestly make sure that the kid can't shoot the messenger, which means I have to be in good shape. I have to apply healthy selfish, which means that I can afford to give without condition. But what's interesting is I meet loads of mums out there who are get that intellectually, right? Who doesn't get that we have to look after ourselves as parents? Who wouldn't get that? But because of their upbringing, they are codependent or have such low esteem that they struggle with that part. So what I want to ask you about is what I imagine mothers will be saying is, but the esteem of Josie in your story is way more important than mine. But what you're saying is it's absolutely the opposite. So how does someone who has never been able to take care of themselves, who may be in some sort of process addiction around avoiding themselves, do they need to go to recovery first before we can help our children? What does that look like? I think that what it looks like is daunting, scary, far too much. Things have to be really extreme. You know, how messed up do you have to be before you see a therapist? All that kind of thing. So I think even parents, mothers, okay, let's stay with mums, or primary carers, it's to really stop and reconsider, honestly, do you attend to your own needs? Honestly, because even thinking about it, I mean, really giving it the time and the consideration will change something. I mean, thinking about self-esteem very specifically, if you were to look at mothers to daughters, we know that the sense of self, sense of identity, sense of self-esteem is born from same gender. It's up the same gender line. So if I want my daughter to have good self-esteem, I am obliged 
to find it in myself. And if I will not find it in myself, then what's going to happen is my daughter is going to be obliged to pretend that she's got good self-esteem so that I don't feel bad as a mother. And then over there in the corner, somewhere privately on her own, she's going to wonder why she feels so insecure. So what's important is that you start with something that's absolutely rock solid, which means that I properly, wholeheartedly and unreservedly attend to me. It means I don't beat myself up. When I look in the mirror, I'm not picking myself apart. I mean, okay, I look in the mirror and think, oh my God, you know, I'm 54. I'm not 19 anymore. What a shock. But nonetheless, that's okay to kind of accept how you look, not just look at face and hair, but try and tune into through your eyes to how you feel, learn how to champion being allowed to receive compliments, being allowed to receive constructive criticism, allowing people to be close, all that kind of relational nourishment. If I, as a mother, allow myself that kind of life, then I model it to my daughter, which means that when I'm not looking, when I'm just getting on with my life and my daughter is learning from me, she's learning something I want her to learn. It's all very well us consciously teaching our children things, but that is a tiny proportion of the amount of time that we're teaching them. The other, goodness knows what percentage, is spent when they're watching you. They're watching when you go to sleep. They're watching you when you eat. They're watching you in your relationships on the phone. They're watching you whether you rush or whether you take your time. They're watching you when you get changed again and again and go, oh my God, I hate this. I look so fat in this. They're watching you and they are learning all the time. Equally, they're watching you when you're calm, when you accept when you're late, when you don't shame yourself or other people for mistakes. They're learning. So I think that if you establish a kind, loving, tolerant relationship with yourself, then what you are doing is not contributing to the unconscious debt that your kids will otherwise pick up in terms of model behavior. Because they don't copy what they say, they copy who we are. I mean, my mum said everything right. You know, she was an incredible mother in so many ways, but I saw her behaviour and that's what I copied. So in in terms of codependence, which you mentioned, Mm. I often think one of the strap lines of codependence is don't worry about me, let's worry about you. I mean, at what point am I allowed to worry about me if the message is don't worry about me, let's worry about you? I mean, I'm like, so if you're worrying about me, am I supposed to worry about someone else? So you worry about me, I'll worry about you, and everybody can worry about everybody else. At what point does the nourishment land? It's very confusing. There's a hypocritical message in there. And I think it's so simple. So when people come into my consulting room and they say things like, don't worry about me, I sort of leap up with glee and go, oh, great. And they sort of look at me like, oh no, what has happened? Because it's those strap lines that give the clues to where people can pay attention to make a difference to their lives. Or if they say, I'm fine, tell us about that, about connecting (laughs) with our feelings and why that's important in this picture of parenting? Well, it's a lie. I mean, firstly, it's a judgment. So if you say, I'm good, unless you're Australian, of course, people say, I'm I'm good, you know, because I was married to one, so I'm allowed to say that. You'd say, I'm good, I'm fine. These are judgments. They're measures of how they feel. I still have no idea how you feel. If I come to you and you say, I say, how are you? And you say, I'm fine. I don't know how you feel. But if you say, I feel happy, I feel sad, I feel irritated, I feel impatient, and I feel hungry, I'm like, yeah, I know how you feel. And I think fine first is a judgment and then there's a let's move on. So there's a self-neglect or there's I'm not telling you anything about me. There's a defense. And if I constantly answer people when they ask me and I say, yes, I'm fine. At what point do I actually stop 
and actually think about how I feel. So when I first got into recovery, I used to tell everyone how I felt. You know, when you go into the supermarket and they're like, how are you today? And I go, oh, you know, I am feeling. And then I go, how are you? And some would be like, oh. <laughs> I mean, and others would say, nobody actually asks. And I'm like, really, how is that for you? You know, so how, honestly, give me three words to describe how you feel right now. And I would ask that and still do sometimes of people because I want to be allowed to be a living, breathing, feeling person in the world. And my kids do it. My kids are very good at doing it. You know, they'll come in and they'll say, don't talk. I'm really angry. It's got nothing to do with you. I'll be all right in a minute. And I'm feeling a bit sad. <laughs> When's supper? You know? <laughs> I'm like, great. Instead of just coming in in a silent mood, I'm not going to fix it. I'm, you, know, you deal with your anger and your sadness. It's not my job, but thanks for letting me know. Because otherwise, this radar goes off in the house and I'll feel uneasy because my family of origin material was there were all these feelings and sometimes they just got lashed out, dumped. You know, it was painful to be around. And then when you said to my parents, how are you? What's going on? They'd be like, nothing. Oh, okay. I must be crazy then because it really felt like something was going on then. But no? Okay. So I start to mistrust my instincts, which means that when I'm around people who've got lots of feelings, I have to work quite hard not to feel afraid. You know, over the years I've worked on it, but like, I find it very difficult to be in big groups of people and to be around people who aren't saying how they feel. So the school gate, oh my God. It's a big trigger for a lot of mothers. The school gate, you walk in there and I'm just like... (gasps) How long do I have to stay before I look weird by leaving? You know, it's scary. Are people performing, people comparing. I mean, I find the school gate a terrifying place. I think if most got honest, everyone, there's lots of nodding. I think everyone would agree, right? Yeah. And then they find out what I do. Oh. <laughs> so you've got no friends at school gate, basically. <laughs> I haven't any friends. None. Yeah, they say, I know you don't want to work when you're coming to the school gate, but... Or someone else will say, you noticed that so-and-so is driving and there'll be a hint about somebody drink driving at the school gate or something like that. And it comes to me and I'm thinking, why does this have to come to me? You take responsibility. What are you going to do about it? Mm. Same applies to when parties, gatherings, all those kinds of things are going on and people come and ask me and say, you know, should we give my 14-year-old alcohol? <laughs> Am I supposed to give my 14-year-old alcohol? And I look at them and think, Okay, I'd like to see you stop them because if there's a gathering going on, they will be pre-drinking before they go. Are you not aware of that yet? 14, 15 years old. You know, when the kid's at a party with a backpack on, what an interesting piece of garb to be wearing at a gathering. So the dude who's got the backpack on is probably divvying out something to everybody else. Invite him to leave it in the study area. It'll be quite safe left there. Hold on to it as if his life depends <laughs> well, on gonna, it. I want to ask you about that later yeah. on. It's our children and, and uh, all of that. But I just want to stay on this track around taking responsibility as the mothers, as yep. the primary caregiver. One of the parts that I absolutely loved in your book was the description of this process of what happens right at the start of this dysfunction, which because it was my lived experience and I saw it in a diagram in your book and I felt really seen and heard by it. So I thought for everyone listening, it might be really useful to share that. And that's this process of when we have this experience of it's not safe to just be me, it's not safe to be vulnerable and what then happens and you describe this good girl model. And I wondered if you could describe that for everyone because I think it's going to be super helpful 
because it's so at odds with what goes on out there, which is that the good girls are, are just good girls. Fundamentally, I think addiction is an offence against being vulnerable. So I do not want to be vulnerable at any cost. That's the basic premise. So I will invite all these maladaptive behaviours in order to defend against being vulnerable and then I forget who I am. So what happens is usually very simply is kind of naught to six when the child is operating from not primarily from the frontal cortex, but from the kind of survival part of the brain. They are like blotting paper in water. It's like nature's cruelest trick really, is that when we're all learning to be parents, our children are soaking up the most. That's so, so true. And it goes straight into a part of the brain that then the frontal cortex comes online and they forget, right? So they honestly, the child will honestly believe that that is who they are because it's in a very primary area of their development. So I always draw this diagram, but if the child naught to six, roughly, experiences vulnerability in a way that makes them feel terror. That doesn't mean a big thing has to happen. It can just be that life just doesn't feel very safe. Maybe mum's very depressed. And it doesn't even have to be the presence of addiction. I mean, it could be that dad loses his job and everything falls apart. I mean, whatever it is. But the point of it is that the child feels terror around the vulnerability. So what they do in order to compensate is what lots of other children do, which is to put on a face. So they might become helpful. So when they want to do their jigsaw and then they see mum come downstairs upset from talking to brother, they look at it and they say, I won't do my jigsaw, mum. I'll put the jigsaw away. Can I help you lay the table? And mum says, oh, where would I be without you? Thank you so much. And the child's like, oh, okay. Do you want me to call my brother for supper? Oh, darling, thank you so much. And I go to school and I say, I'll do tidy up time. And they say, what a joy to have in the classroom. And I'm thinking, I know who to be. I know exactly who to be here. And I adopt a persona of people pleaser, if you like. And then through my people pleasing years, I then discover being a funny in the class and I'll be a rock to people who are a bit tricky and I'll pick up the pieces. And if the new girl comes, I'll show her around. And when the parents come and they sit there and they hear such a delight to have in the classroom, such a good girl. And the parents are going, oh, thank goodness we've got one. At least, you know, we got one right because the brother's a nightmare. <laughs> and the child is reinforced in this dysfunctional pattern of being a people pleaser. Now, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. And therapy is a space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Therapy is just an incredible, safe, non-judgmental space. I absolutely love it. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule, which I think as busy mums is what we all need. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash motherkind today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash motherkind. In some ways, that's okay to behave well and be nice and polite and be all those things. The tricky part is, if you're anything like me, when you put on a facade and the rest of the world believes it, I'm very happy to cancel Mandy out, stick her underneath that table and go, do you know what? You hide under there. I'll put an envoy into the world and nobody will know and you never have to be vulnerable again. And then I will add on top of my people pleasing because the pressure builds up of what about me? 
She's in there going, what about me? And I'm like, shut up, don't come out, it's not safe. I need to continue to be nice to people. But periodically, I feel rage and I feel overseen. So in order to deal with those feelings, I find that I mess with my food a bit. I used to bang my head against the wall. That's how I used to get over feelings. I would bang my head against the wall. And then people would say things to me like, I don't know what you're doing. Why are you doing this to yourself? So on top of that, then there'll be the shame. And the feeling is very much that there's something wrong with me, which means you really can't come out. So I have to bury her in there. And the way I would look at it is, which is going to be difficult for the podcast people, but you are born close together, aligned with your baby self. And if you blow on a baby's face, they will react like that. And as we grow up, there's a space between the child and how you represent yourself. And it's good to have that shock absorber space. Life is not immediate in that way. You have to be able to take responsibility. But what I did is I went, forget that, forget the feelings. So I crushed the feelings and buried them. And I reinforced the facade version of Mandy. And I went out into the world like this. And there was a bigger, bigger gap between how I felt and how I looked. And then sometimes when I got hold of drugs and alcohol, you know, 13, 14 years old, sometimes I would get really, really trashed. And I would tell someone the depth of this feeling. I feel so lonely. I feel so bad about myself. I don't feel good enough. And the people who'd met me here would be shocked. Oh my God, I had no idea you felt like that. So now I'm like, oh my God, I really feel shame. So now I really have to bury you. So in here, we have a disconnect between how I look, which has got coping mechanisms like drugs, alcohol, people pleasing, messing with my food, over-exercising, working. There are all the behavioral stuff. There's rebelling. You know, my strap line all through my teen years was, I don't give a shit. I don't care. I don't care. Why would I care? I don't care. Do what you want. I don't care. And I told myself, I don't care. Why? Because if I care, I've had it. If I care, I'm vulnerable. So I want to believe that I don't care. So therefore, of course, cocaine was my favorite drug because boy, boy, does that help you not to care. It also helps you to hide in the chaos of looking like you do care. You just don't give a shit about anybody else, but you're really self-centered and this kind of hiding in chaos feeling. So then you have the feelings buried here and you have this maladaptive facade and then things start to go wrong. And I think decent treatment and decent intervention is to look at the gap between how you feel and what you look like and start trying to pick out, literally extract some of those maladaptive behaviors. You can't take all of them out at once. You really can't because I think people collapse and relapse. But I'd start challenging things like the people pleasing, take away the drugs and the alcohol and then challenge a bit of the people pleasing. And when you challenge people pleasing, you're saying to somebody, if you were making this decision, can you put a version of yourself in the lineup of all the people you're trying to decide? Shall I go to dinner with this person? Shall I ring this person? Shall I drive this person? Shall I buy a sandwich for this person? You also put an image of yourself as a child because it's easier to take care of yourself as an image of as a child than as an adult. You put them in the lineup too and you say, and what do you want to do? And when I'm working with people, I will say, well, you're not necessarily going to get what you want. Okay. So don't think I'm just going to override it. I just want you to hear what you want. I want you to hear what you are compromising in favor of your people pleasing, because I want to create a conscious conflict in you around your maladaptive behavior, which is immediate to people please, to be good, to make everybody happy. And the feeling of self-neglect, being overlooked, being taken for granted. What about me? Which is profoundly shame-based because I am not supposed to need anything. So I want to introduce that dissonance that says, okay, I admit it. I just wanted to stay home tonight. I mean, I'm going to go and do all these things, but I admit it. Three weeks hence, I'm like, 
Actually, it's true. I really do. Three months hence, the message is, do you know what? I am staying home tonight. Three years hence, you have, I'm staying at home. I'm going out. I'm taking care of me. I'm in good shape. So it's a process. And that's how recovery happens, isn't it? It's my experience of it is that is that peeling away the layers of those behaviors to get to the core of, you know, 12 years in a daily process for me still. So a couple of things. How does a parent know listening to this going, oh, shit, I've got a good girl. She does everything that I want. How does someone know whether they genuinely have a child that they've parented brilliantly and is very cooperative and happy in the world, or they've got someone that you're describing, which is that they're adapting themselves to increase this distance between who they are and who they're presenting to the world. How on earth does a mother who's not a therapist or in recovery, what do they do with that? Okay. Tricky question. Sorry. No, no. I, I think, think I like to okay. think what my audience are going to be thinking. Okay. I think that it's got to be age appropriate as well. So that okay. if you kind of settle in your ages, sort of up to eight or nine, the sort of nine to 13 or 14, 14 upwards, those sorts of things. First and foremost, when parents come and say, how did we get here? <laughs> right. The answer is a large dose of denial. That's the answer because there will be an abundance of clues that have been written off to things like, oh, she only gets drunk when she's out with Izzy, or she only did that because she was tired. So the first thing is, please don't have a knee-jerk reaction. It's very important. Don't listen to this podcast and then have a knee-jerk reaction. Percolate. Hard to do if you're not connected to your feelings, but okay. And that's my second point. Very good. (laughs) Don't have a knee-jerk reaction. Let the dust settle in your own world. Allow yourself to be curious about what you've heard and what you're thinking and what you're feeling. If you feel changed by hearing podcasts, TED Talks, things like this, allow the information to percolate through you first. Digest love before you give it away. Digest information before you start trying to give it back to someone else. Give digested versions, not undigested versions first. So allow it to settle in you first. Second, no knee-jerk reaction. Third, it's age appropriate. We have more agency, if you like, over little ones, but older ones might present in different ways. But the most important thing above spotting the clues for clues rather than writing them off in a denial process of it was only once, everybody does it, all that kind of stuff, is the assessment tool is you. You know your children better than I ever will. I can work with your child for two years and I will never know them as well as you know them. You know your children. I know this illness. You know your children. So when a parent feels de-skilled, out of touch with, terrified by what they're seeing, what they're suspicious of, all those kinds of things, it's the parent who needs the help, not the child. Clean up the assessment tool. Clean up the parent's ability to recognize when they're projecting their own losses, their own fears, their own expectations onto the child. Maybe they recognize talent in the child that they were never able to realize. I mean, there's a gazillion things that they could be doing. Clean up the assessment tool that is the parent so that when they are sitting in a room with another parent, with a friend or with a therapist, whatever, they can absolutely hand on heart say, this is my stuff. The rest must be my child. That's the work. Now, if the child is older, if the child is a teenager, then you might want to bring them in because you are worried about them. And most of the time, honestly, most of the time parents are right. When they have a gut instinct that there is something wrong here, they're usually right. The bit they miss is that there's something wrong might be about them. So when I launched Charter... Yeah, sorry, but it's good. If we, we all want the same it. thing, we if we all want it. the same thing, we have to have the humility to know that we're involved. 
I'm involved in my children's upbringing. I mean, I'm, I'm a recovering addict. I'm a single working mother who is divorced, right? And it's all on me and I have to work with that. I look at the mistakes I make all the time. My kids sometimes say to me, you should know better. You're a therapist. And I just think, well, the gift is that at least you know that and you're able to say that. Are you ever worried about any of your children? Of course. Of course I worry about them. Do you over worry because of the knowledge you have? I am honest with them about the potential that I will over-worry because of the knowledge that I have. <laughs> um, That's good to hear. That's you know, and I say to them, look, I have to tell you that when you go AWOL, I'm thinking France, stolen car, bloke, coke, alcohol. Because that's what you did, right? Yeah. <laughs> and my daughter's like, I was on the common, you know. How old are they? Just um, 12, 16 and 19. I'm okay. like, I go there. They've taught me not to. And I'm like, okay, that's great. You are not me. And a very wise teacher said to me, they have different parents to the ones you had. The thing about the kids, though, what I was going to say is that the parents are often right. So in 2008, when I launched Charter, I think probably maybe 15% of my client group was a sort of 16 to 20s. Now, over 75% of my client group is that age group and probably 14 upwards. Because I've got such a large presence in the independent school sector, I have a lot of teenagers who come to me and they will come after the talk and they'll say, can I have a session with you? I've got all these different things, but really I want to talk to you about my mother. And I say, bring your mother. And then they will come in and the mother will say, I'm so worried about so-and-so. And the child will be like, Mum, I need to talk to you. I'm like, okay. So the child might go and get sorted out, go to treatment, or they might go through some sort of treatment process, but so does mum. And what happens six, nine months down the line is that the relationship is transformed. So if you can have the courage to realise that you're involved in the dynamic that you might be worried about, if that child wants to do nothing about it, you can still do something about it because you can clean up your side of the street. You can take responsibility for the part that you've played with your hand on the tiller that's guided that, and you can let the other person know that they're responsible for the rest. I mean, I think it's a respectful process, depending on how old the child is. But the thing is, most of the time, the parent's right. But they're not always right about what's wrong. But they're right that there's something up. Yeah. Well, this stuff doesn't come from nowhere. That's what I want to translate. You know, yeah. It doesn't come from nowhere. Yeah. Okay. And it goes further back. I mean, my children's stuff goes further back than me. It goes with my parents and my parents' parents and my parents' parents. Yeah. This is not about I anybody. I always say this. Yeah. I have a dynasty behind me of um, dysfunctional addiction. No, of people not. say things like, you know, I don't want to talk ill about my parents because I feel protective of them. And I say things like, well, you're protecting them from how angry you are, not from me. You know, if you didn't feel that you blamed your parents, you'd be able to look at their ingredients. If you honestly felt that there was no judgment and no blame, you'd be able to go in the larder and go, yep, that's dad, that's mum, and that's what happened to me. Oh, how interesting. But you're going in there going, no, can't talk about mum. And I'm thinking, well, why? It's because of your judgment of those ingredients. It's not mine. There's one thing that changed this for me is that about five years into my recovery, someone suggested that I go and ask my mum about her childhood. It was amazing because the compassion that came from that, because I was like, of course, you didn't stand a chance either. Yeah. So I think that's really important about taking the blame away. So technology, screen addiction, what do we do? How do we know when someone is addicted to technology? When is it age appropriate to give someone a phone or a screen? I know everyone's going to really want your view on this because I Let get asked keep loads and I don't simple then. I'll try and keep this really simple. I honestly don't think that any child should own their own technology when they're operating from that survival part of the brain. Zero to okay. six. They don't own their own. Zero okay. to six, zero to seven. They shouldn't own their own technology, full stop. Because if they do, 
when you take it away from them, you're hitting into their survival area, right? So you're going to take away something that they're going to be like, I don't live without that. And that's because that's the part of the brain that's playing with it. Well, and loss aversion is coming into play. Well, they can borrow family stuff. You can borrow mum's phone. And so you borrow a phone or a piece of kit for a time-limited outwardly stated time limit so you can have it for 15 minutes to watch Peppa Pig because you like it so you tell them that they can use they can borrow it time what it's for because so you teach them right from the start what this is all about and you give them the boundaries and they won't argue with you if you teach them that. And then you graduate through giving them a little bit more agency at every stage. Okay. That's the first thing. The second thing is I think all parents should have access to their kids' accounts, assuming that social media accounts. Yeah. Okay. Assuming, and this is the big difficult assumption that all parents are capable of being boundaried when they access their children's accounts. And that comes back to why the parents should also take a look at themselves. But in principle, in an ideal world, we should be looking at our kids sort of 12 to 15 whilst they're bobbering around in the safe harbour, near enough to us on the beach to go and fix them if something terrible happens, but far enough away for them to gain confidence that they can handle this incredibly potent influence in their lives. It's there. It's going to be there. They have to learn how to handle it. Therefore, what we want to be teaching them is the relationship between the kit and them. Now, if the parent overreacts to use of phone, use of gaming, whatever it is, will you get off that bloody thing? It's ruining our lives. I've had enough of this and all of that. All the kid learns is mum's a nightmare, dad's in a bad mood. They don't learn anything about being agitated by the kit themselves. So what you want to be able to do is to be in good shape yourself. So you point out that the child is getting very agitated in this relationship, that the child is unable to stop when they said they were going to stop. And the child will try to bait the parent to overreact so they can displace the healthy shame of not maintaining the boundary onto the parent who then blows and then everything can be lost in the drama. So firstly, teach them from a very young age around ownership, time, use, and so on. Graduate gently whilst overlooking, cook gently, whilst overlooking what they're doing and be able to intervene at certain stages, seven, eight, nine, yes. Whilst they're 13, they're going to have a lot more independence. You're not going to comment on their social media or anything, but you're going to watch. You wait to see if they communicate with you. And when you intervene on any kind of screen use, you have to keep your dignity. It's really important what does that, that you, mean? it means you stay cool and calm. If you are going to go okay. and intervene on a kid who's supposed to have come to tea and he hasn't come because he's still playing Fortnite and you storm into that room raging, you've already not only lost the battle, but you've contributed to the connection between technology and your child. You've given them a point. So they go closer to the tech further from you. From you. Get so it. you want to stay cool, want to stay okay. calm, and you okay. want to be able to say things like, I think it's a real shame that I've called you for tea and we're all sitting up there having tea and you clearly prefer to be on Fortnite. And then you don't stand there with a big target on you going, and give me back what you're going to say. You turn around and walk out. I leave you to cook with your healthy shame and I trust that that will teach you. And when they come upstairs and say, oh, I'm so sorry. And you don't not feed them. I mean, God, some parents said to me, so what do they get? No tea. And I'm like, so what happens next? So they get no tea. Child comes up and says, terribly sorry. And the parent goes, good, good, good. They have tea, but they go to bed. And then at 9.30, they're like, I can't sleep because I'm hungry. And mum goes, come down, let's make you some pancakes. And you're like, that really backfired. No, you, what you do is you take supper, you cover it in cellophane, you leave it in the middle of the table. The child comes up and you say, there it is. I expect you to sit there. No phone or anything at the table. Sit there, eat your supper. It's cold. I'm really sad that you prioritized Fortnite over a family tea. It's a shame, isn't it? Turn around and walk away. 
I will let shame and my disappointment and my wish that you respect me teach you. I want that to teach you. I'm in it for the long game. Why? Because the relationship with screens is connected to the big guns of drugs and alcohol later. So when you've got screens in your home, you want as parents to welcome it as an opportunity to put one in the bank on your side against drugs and alcohol before they even march into the ranch. Because next time it might be booze and coke. Because if they are dissociating in their screen use, believe I have never yet met an alcoholic who feels themselves getting pissed. They have a drink and they dissociate and the next minute they're shit-faced. What we want to do is keep people connected in their using so that they can feel the impact, so they have a nat's chance of taking responsibility for what happens next. Okay. And that's on us. That's so helpful and important because that mother that you were describing who is able to walk up calmly as dinner is being ruined, that is someone who is self-aware. That's someone who can hold a boundary. So I just wondered if we could finish by talking about boundaries. I couldn't let this end without going into boundaries a bit more. So if someone never learnt boundaries... Someone might even be listening to this going, what the hell is a boundary? How does a mother who didn't get taught it, has never had inner or outer boundaries, how do they learn? Do they have to go to therapy to learn how to hold that boundary with their children? Oh, do you know when I hear you say, do they have to go to therapy? You see, I think, <laughs> have to. Sorry. I don't have to go to, do you have to go to therapy? I'm thinking, I love therapy. It's my, so, so do it's, I. It's my lovely love hobby. Therapy. But not everyone listening will feel the same as us. No, I know. In this room. Yeah, but they're wrong. But it's okay. <laughs> Okay. So I think that boundaries, I mean, people talk about putting up a boundary and I think, no, you just put up a wall. Boundaries and that, all that language is all about control. I actually think that boundaries are the kind of automatic external representation of how you feel about yourself. That's powerful. Hang on. Let me just, so boundaries are a representation of how you feel. Yeah. They they are the external representation of how you feel about yourself. yourself. You know, when you're in the room with somebody who's got boundaries, you feel it. You feel respect. You can feel it. They're clear. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And they're not trying to control anyone else. You know, assertiveness is representing myself. Aggression is trying to control you. All I'm doing is representing myself. It's up to you what you do with what, what happens next but I'd like the opportunity to speak. And that means that I know that I matter to me. And I think that if you are thinking, I don't know what a boundary is, my child doesn't respect me, I have no control in the home, I feel walked all over, Mm -hmm. I'm losing track, I don't feel like a good enough mother, all of those things, I would say to you, take some time out for yourself. And, you know, if you look on Google and you looked up ideas for self-care, let's just say, and there's lots of posters and things there, you know, a hundred things you can do that are good self-care. Could listen to some of my episodes. Yeah. Lots of self-care. Exactly. Do them. Because I think self-esteem is self-care in action. Okay? Self-esteem is self-care in action. And boundaries are the external representation of that self-esteem. I matter. I don't need to take up more space or less space than I need that's be in this world. And that's it. And if you are my children and I am responsible for you, we need to work together with that stuff. So if I'm consistent and clear and I'm honest and I take care of myself and I'm in good self-esteem, I think we are already halfway there. And I don't expect my kids, I don't expect my kids to agree. I mean, I don't expect them to like me for it. You know, they're off the hook for that one. Well, there's your people pleasing. And if I, you know what? People say I want to be a good mother for my children. And I get that. I really get that. I want to be a good mother for my children. But I really want to be a good mother for me because when I go to bed at night, I want to be able to put my head on the pillow and think, you know, well done, Mandy, you did a good enough job today. That's what I want. 
And it isn't dependent on my children sounding like the Waltons and all saying goodnight to each other. They all slam the door and go into their rooms. As long as I know that they're all kind of, I get it. Oh, yeah, I see why you're in those places. And I feel all right about me. Then I get a good night's sleep. And that's as important. What a way to end. Thanks, Mandy. Thank wow. you. Thank you. Thank you. Round of applause for Mandy. Thank you. So that's it. Thank you for listening to the episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. And if you did, please do leave a review on iTunes. It does make a massive difference to the number of mums that we can reach with this content. If you were listening to that episode, thinking about one of your friends that they might benefit from what we were chatting about, then just tag them in on Instagram. My bio will include the link to the podcast so they can find it really easily from there. People often tell me they're desperate to share it with their friends. So if that's you, then please do. I feel like the guests that we have on the podcast, their wisdom just deserves to be heard far and wide. So help me make that happen. I'd be very grateful. And also, if you want to send me any comments or thoughts about the episode, then please pop over onto Instagram at motherkind underscore Zoe. And also, just to let you know about my coaching. So I do work one-on-one with mums on my programme, which is a three-month programme called Reconnect to You. So if you want to work with me on taking your power back in any area of your life, then please do get in touch. Just drop me an email, zoe at motherkind.co or look on the website, www.motherkind.co. That's it. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Take care.